welcome to the Giddy Carousel of Pop, the podcast that takes an old issue of Britain's brightest magazine smash hits and has a good nose through its pages with a guest. I'm Simon Galloway, and he's captured our hearts, he's captured our memories. It's Gavin Hogg. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Another lovely introduction. Well, thank you. I thought I should start preparing something for you, shouldn't I? But no, it's a bit late now. I, I, I'm not very good with compliments. So, okay, that's yeah, fine. Well, I'll yeah, take all the compliments. Yeah, you, you take all the compliments, and I'll, I'll just yeah, just sit in the background. It's fine. We're like yin and yang. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> thank you for that. Delightful. So before we set the carousel spinning in motion, Gav, who's been supporting the podcast by buying us a coffee? Who indeed? Why? It's our good friends at Boat Whistle Books. Thank you very much for your coffee. And uh, also thanks to all the lovely listeners for comments about the most recent episode with Mr. Mark Ellen and Marco Peroni. Yeah. Had lots of lovely feedback. So thanks for listening and uh, glad you enjoyed it. It was a bit special there, wasn't it? (laughs) Not that they're not all special, but that one was special. And if you want to support us, you too can do the same. It's very simple and it can be just a one-off thing or you can buy us as many coffees as you like, as often as you like. It's up to you. Just go to coffee.com slash giddypoppod. That's ko-fi.com slash giddypoppod and chuck us a few quid to help keep the carousel spinning. So, Gav... Who's joining us on the carousel this time? Well, Si, I'm very glad you asked. Let me paint a picture with the words from my mouth. (laughs) The nights are beginning to draw in and the temperature is slowly falling, each day a little colder. The aroma of baked potatoes and bonfires gently wafts across the fairground, while those little imps, Hazy Fantasy, beg us for another ride on the carousel. We explain that it will be impossible as we have a special guest all the way from Australia joining us today and we want the ride to be immaculate. No bits of straw, fag ends and discarded moccasins, which happened last time Hazy took a spin. Our driver has picked our Antipodean visitor up from the airport and has called Fairground HQ from a phone box to say they'll be with us very shortly. Hazy Fantasy refused to vacate the premises, so Cy chases him off with his broom. And minutes later... (laughs) Clear up. I love love that image of you chasing Hazy Fantasy with a broom. You would, you totally would. would. I I can picture it in my mind. Loitering with all their... (laughs) Ways. <laughs> the big leggy ways. <laughs> and minutes later, our smiling yet slightly dazed guest is deposited from a Ford Fiesta. She's travelled all the way from Melbourne to take a ride. It's co-writer of the fantastic podcast Childproof, co-editor of the Scrivener's Fancy Site, freelance book editor and columnist, Serena Rowell. Serena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for flying all this way to see us. Thank you so much. Which horse would you like to sit on today? <laughs> Which horse? Mm. Well, I was actually always quite frightened of carousel horses, so I was sort of the the wussy kid who had to sit in the little sort of um, carriagey thing that wasn't actually on a horse because I was quite scared when they went up and down. So, which is really pathetic, isn't it? So, just the safest, slowest, most contained one. Exactly. Yeah. yeah the the wasn't actually a horse. That's where you would have found me, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> Is, is it the nostrils that scare you? What is it about them? <laughs> it's sort of the, it's kind of the, the stamping feet, I think. And even on an actual carousel, the, 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 the sort of the going up and down while sitting astride them just always frightened me. No, they're all valid concerns, definitely. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll, we'll flick the switch and get the carousel spinning upon the truthful answering of this question, Serena. Have you ever been sick in a gumboot? Oh, uh, I've been sick down my front but not in a gumboot. Okay. I mean, a little bit. Yeah. Were you wearing gumboots at the time? Would some of it splashed into the top of a gumboot, maybe? <laughs> Would have been so convenient if I'd been holding a gumboot in, in front of me, but unfortunately I wasn't, yeah. no. 
No, in fact... Okay, well, that's fine. You don't have to have done it to start the carousel. We just need a truthful answer, and you've given us that, so that's fine. <laughs> so you may have been sick near a gumboot. Let's let's say that. You're 50% yeah, there. Yeah, I'm sure I've been sick somewhere with gumboots in the cupboard. That, that's good enough for us. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and the carousel has spun us back to the smash hits of the 8th to the 21st of December 1983, which Serena has picked out for us to peruse. Mm. And if you want to read along with us, you can do just that, thanks to the Like Punk Never Happened and Smash Hits Remembered websites. You'll find the links to the scans of the issue in the episode show notes, along with Spotify and YouTube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this issue of the hits and it goes pretty deep this one as well um you'll find these links on our website giddypoppod.home.blog and we'll post them on our twitter and facebook feeds as well just search for the giddy carousel of pop or at giddypoppod so serena before we we embark on our journey into this issue of smash it's just tell us what life was like for a pop kid in a land down under Yeah, all right. Well, that is a great question. Well, I guess for me, I became really obsessed with music. It's sort of 1982. Uh, Fell in love with Simon Le Bon in, it was like early 82. It's it's strange how it happened because there was a rumour in Australia, and I don't know if it existed anywhere else, and I've never been able to find verification of it on the internet, that he was the son of Brian Ferry. That was the rumour in Australia. Yes, seriously, and everyone believed it. Everyone believed it. I remember the first time I saw Planet Earth and my sister saying, oh, well, he's Brian Ferry's son, and I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's, that's good. And so that was kind of, you know, intriguing that he was Brian Ferry's son. And then for some reason, though, I fell in love with him when I heard him interviewed on 2SM, which was sort of a, you know, top 40 station that, that we listened, that everybody listened to. And uh, Charlie Fox, the DJ, interviewed him and said, oh, well, I, I hear you're Brian Ferry's son. And LeBond said, oh, and Le- and LeBond said that's Balderdash. And for whatever reason, him saying that's Balderdash, I was then, like, absolutely in love with him. And I, was, I had a group of friends at school and we were all in love with, like, a particular member of Duran Duran. And when it was the birthday of one of them, we'd bring a cake to school to celebrate and they were my first concert ever at the Horden Pavilion in 82 and I I borrowed this big pair of white knickerbockers from my my sister, Neuromantic style. It was absolutely great. And so absolutely, yeah, madly in love with them. But then it ended because they released the Rio video and my best friend and I had this sort of ceremonial taking down of the posters in sort of, so it really only lasted a few months because yeah, we just could not stomach the, the Rio video at all. It was the- <laughs> What was it in particular about it? I think what we, we didn't like the horseplay, you know, that bit in the middle when Simon Le Bon's like pretending to answer the phone and like he's wearing the, <laughs> the tiny swimming costume and they're wearing just those ridiculous suits and they're on the yacht and we're like, this is, like the the worst thing that we've ever seen and and uh then it was all over so it was actually probably only because I think it get that I think Rio came out in Australia in in August maybe that year so so the love affair was probably only about April May June it was probably about five months but it's very intense but that got me into that life of going and like feverishly uh just hanging around newsagents all the time 
and, you know, buying magazines. And it felt like such a triumph. If someone who you're in love with was on the cover, it was like a clue that you were going to marry them or something. And obviously it must be so hard to explain to, like, you know, the kids of today that you used to have to wait for anything and it would be like a, a huge deal. And, of course, we used to get smash hits a few weeks late, I, off the top of my head, oh, maybe six weeks late or something like that. So, yeah, we'd have to wait for it. But I've, you know, religiously read Smash Hits and NME and Melody Maker and the Australian press as well. Um, yeah, and I mean, other than that, it was that thing of, you know, hanging around record shops for your don't have any money. And I grew up in Sydney and the shops used to close at midday on Saturday and they were shut on Sunday. So you'd get the bus into the city really early and just hang around record shops without any money and, and go home again. So, yeah, it was a riveting existence, as you can tell. <laughs> and that's that's what it was like. Who were the other <laughs> uh, bands and singers that you liked, apart from your brief affair with uh, son of Brian Ferry, Simon Le bon? <laughs> Uh, I, it's, well, I, mm, I sort of liked the, the Human League, but it was more I was really jealous of those, those girls. I was kind of obsessed with those girls in the Human League because they were just sort of living the life, weren't they? They just got picked out of that disco in Sheffield and couldn't, couldn't dance, couldn't, couldn't sing and uh, were touring the world. So I was kind of obsessed with the Human League, but not so much a fan. I liked the I liked the Thompson twins. Um, I absolutely loved Haircut One Hundred. I was and I was so much in love with with Nick Hayward. I mean, just madly in love with him. Which is that's, that's the kind of thing I guess too. If you're a girl, there's a kind of hormonal side of it that I don't know maybe exists as much with uh, teenage boys. Possibly not. I'm thinking of you with your Madonna poster. Yeah, yeah, oh. I, I had my yeah, I had my brief phase kissing my Madonna poster when I was. Oh um, no, fair enough. Yeah, and oh look, I'm just who wouldn't? Um, who wouldn't? Absolutely. Oh, and I loved the 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 Cure and David Bowie and Susie and the Banshees. Um, that's probably. I wasn't so much and. I wasn't so much into Adam and the Ants, but our school, it, it was kind of split into Adam and the Ants and Duran Duran. And the Adam and the Ants people would occasionally wear the stripe over the nose. And, and I had this friend who was saving herself for Adam Ant, which I hope she didn't do in the, <laughs> in the end. Um, so I liked a lot of people, but... It seems to be all British bands that you've named there, so no no homegrown talent. You weren't rocking out to Jimmy Barnes or anything like that. Well, I have to say, to this absolutely to this day, I have a massive soft, soft spot for In Excess, to the horror of everyone, basically, who I know. I still love In Excess. I really liked a band called Ice House, but that's, let's not even open that file because... Well, Surely, if any if anybody's going to be Brian Ferry's son, surely it's Ivor Davis. Oh, don't yeah. even! Oh my God, I know. <laughs> there's, I know. There's songs on that are like almost plagiarism when it comes to uh, that. Maybe cut that out of the podcast. But yeah, no, I liked. I was a big Ice House fan. Um, I yeah, not so much Cold Chisel and and that kind of gang. But yeah, loved in excess and uh, and and Ice House and yeah, no, definitely homegrown talent too. America was a bit out in the cold in those in those days. 
American stuff was a lot. Do, do, uh, do you know the word daggy? Yeah. By any chance? Yeah, but, but, but can, I, explain it for us. Okay, well, it's an Australian slang term just meaning, well, just very uncool, basically. And American stuff, yes, was, I don't know, just kind of seemed to be, except for Madonna, who I absolutely loved as well. Um, and Cindy Lauper, and but anyway, this whole other topic. But but yeah, English music was was sort of very much cooler, and that's what that's what people were into one hundred percent. England was like the absolute promised land in the in the early eighties, and of course it is now. I'm not saying it isn't. <laughs> Thank in you. The early eighties. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and did it do well in the charts? The English music, I guess it did. English music was absolutely huge. Yeah, mm. and bands would tour, and I mean everyone would just go just go apeshit so that they were huge hit no question and you talked about you'd seen the, the video for rio so what you know obviously we had top of the pops yep. here but what what did you have um in, in australia as like an equivalent sort of thing well our show was called countdown it was on the abc and it was very similar to top of the pops uh in that bands would come and well you know mime obviously uh do you know ian molly have you heard of ian molly meldrum ever at any time yeah uh, <laughs> He was uh, our musical guru and, and sort of famously inarticulate. <laughs> Very enthusiastic about music. Great guy, like, you know, a big fan. Yeah, I mean, he would admit it himself, famously uh, inarticulate. Countdown could be kind of a ramshackle sort of show, but it was, yeah, ab- I mean, absolute appointment television. It was on at six o'clock on Sundays and it was repeated on Saturday. And so you would be glued to it on Sunday, but then also watch the repeat on, on the Saturday. And all the bands who toured would, would go on that, including Duran Duran and the Human League, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a red letter night, obviously. Yeah, and I've, I've seen a particularly <laughs> awkward uh, interview that he did with Iggy Pop. Oh, uh, yeah. yes, I've seen that. That's <laughs> yeah. hilarious. Yeah, that is legendary. Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, Elton John smashed a cake into his face once. Like, there's many, many famous kind of countdown <laughs> moments involving, <laughs> involving Molly. And how old were you at the time that this issue came out? Uh, when this issue came out, I was, I would have been 15. And I, so I was in year 10 at school, which is, well, I had two years of high school to go, but when this issue came out, I was, or I don't, I might be jumping ahead too much here, but I was actually in England when this um, oh. issue came out, which brings us to the question, I guess, of, well, when we get to the question of why this issue, that is part of it. Which is my That's... next question. <laughs> why this <Right>. issue? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it's, it's two-pronged. First of all, um, the major reason, well, equal major reason, I guess, was the Duran Duran mag in the middle because I was so, because they're quite critical of Australia in it. They were living in Australia at the time and they're quite critical. And I was absolutely furious and wrote a, like a really angry letter to Smash Hits because I was just so upset about it. As we've established, I wasn't even a fan of theirs by then. And I was so angry by what they said, but I'll have a lot more to say on that topic, obviously, once we get to it. And the second reason was that I, I was in England and it was, I mean, I cannot even describe how exciting it was to buy and read it in in England. It was phenomenal to be, oh, I mean, I went to Carnaby Street just to look at the Smash Hits office. Wow. Basically, that was, I mean, I knew what Carnaby Street was, but it was mainly to look at the Smash Hits office. And it was, yeah, it, I mean, it was beyond exciting. And it was amazing when I went through the issue 
how much in this issue uh, sums up why I love Smash Hits so much. And there are so many things in it that I've just remembered for years and years and years. I honestly had no idea were in that particular issue, which again, we will get to, but I was, I couldn't believe it. And yeah, so much in it just sums up why Smash Hits was just so fantastic. Because it was just like basically, I mean, as you guys talk about it and you're the experts, but I mean, it was like basically a humour magazine that just happened, in a way, happened to be about music because it was it was so funny. The first time I read it, it just, I mean, I would have bought it. I think the first one I bought maybe had altered images on the cover because I liked altered images and it just blew my mind because it was it was just so funny. <laughs> do you think that, is the Australian humour and the English humour, do you think they're very similar? Yeah, I think they. I think they're extreme. I, I think they're extremely similar. And I mean, Australia. It's interesting. It's a. I always think that Australians are kind of bilingual in America and Britain. I found when I went to Britain, I would be shocked by things. And I'm, I'm talking about the eighties. I'm sure it's very different now. But I would be shocked by things people didn't know about, like the Brady Bunch and this sort of thing. Mm. While I'm always shocked by the amount of things American people don't know about Britain. It's a good thing about Australia, really. I mean, you know, I guess there people would jump on and say we need to have our own culture, which we do. But I, I quite like having that, being in the middle like that and feeling like you understand both. But, yes, that was a long-winded answer to your question. But, yes, I absolutely <laughs> think the sense of humour is, is, is very similar. <laughs> do you remember how expensive it was to buy in uh, Australia? Because it was this issue was 40 pence in England. That is a great question. It was probably... Might have been three dollars or something around then, because that was probably about it's probably about two dollars in our currency plus they had to mail. It was might have been three dollars, something like that. Unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, I don't have my old smash hits with me. But yeah, it was probably around there. It wasn't super expensive. Sounds yeah. expensive to me. It but. does. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have bought it. <laughs> Right, well, shall we launch ourselves into this issue then? Yes. There it is. Smash Hits, the uh, 8th to the 21st of December, 1983. Um, Serena, do you want to just take us through the, the cover, what we're looking at here? Well, we're looking at a very, quite a moody picture of John Taylor and, and Nick Rhodes. I mean, they look actually almost identical. And John and Duran uh, Duran were very much in their kind of, highlights period at that time. Nick Rhodes has a lot of blonde highlights. John Taylor has what I would call mahogany highlights. Uh, And we read that there's a 16-page colour special about Duran Duran and that the magazine is also featuring Eurythmics, Paul Young, Status Quo, Robert Smith and Tina Turner, which is a very... It's an interesting... Like, it's an interesting selection. (laughs) Pretty broad-ranging. If there's not... If you don't like any of that, then there's probably not that much for yeah, you. something for everyone there, isn't there? In life, I mean, not just in the magazine, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we should, should just mention, actually, this is this is a massive issue. It's like yeah. over 80 pages, yeah, Eight, 88 pages altogether. Yes. I mean, this is That's possibly... Double, double what we did last yeah. time, isn't it? It's possibly the biggest issue of Smash It's that, that, um, that we've ever encountered. Oh. I'll just quickly go through, uh, go through the... Uh, yeah, I'm going to be here in a while. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just quickly go through the um, contents page, um, the songs that are in this one. Well, we begin with the, the lyrics for the uh, rather repetitive and grinding The Way You Are by Tears for fears oh. um that's, that's 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 your first lyric in there and then we get on to um tell her about it by billy joel 
definitely need to find some music for this part. Uh, Margarita <laughs> Time by Status Quo. Um, Nick Kershaw, I won't let the sun go down. Lionel Richie, Running with the Night. Many Rivers to Cross. Bloody UB40. Um, my Oh My by Slade. Uh, Rock the Midnight by David Grant. That's an odd title, isn't it? Hmm. Bark at the Moon by Ozzy Osbourne. I can see why they put those two together. Um, Terry, Kirsten McColl, Strip, Adamant, You're in My Heart, David Essex. Um, Islands in the Stream by Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Um, rat Rapping, Roland Rat Superstar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, Coldest Christmas in the Middle of the Year by Elton John. Uh, and Only You by The Flying Pickets. Oh, and there's a, a star choice chosen by Roddy Frame. Mm. I think possibly the one and only time that a lyric by Captain Beefheart has <laughs> appeared in the magazine. We'll get to that in due course. Uh, and then, yeah, like Serena mentioned, features on Paul Young, Tina Turner, Status Quo, uh, Robert Smith uh, from The Cure, uh, a nice picture or poster of Marilyn on the mm. back, and then that big old Duran Duran uh, centre, well, pull-out section that's uh, yeah, sitting right there in the middle of the magazine, bulking it out there at 16 pages. <laughs> one one thing that just made me think it's quite unusual about the cover is that the singer of the band isn't on there. No, yeah. I mean I, I know John Taylor was kind of the the good looking one out of the band, but most fanciful male for pretty much the entire eighties. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But it is unusual not to have a singer of a band on, isn't it? Yeah. If you're going to have just one or two people from a band. Yeah. It's it's always going to be John Taylor though, isn't it? And I'm you know, surprised that that you were crushing on Simon Le Bon. You know, but, you know, who who out of your friendship group uh, got John Taylor? And was there any jealousy or rivalry there? Look, you make a very well. Basically, out of the five of us, there were two who were for John Taylor, one for Nick Rhodes, two for Simon Le Bon. Uh, yeah, it was like nobody, Roger and Andy were always much further down on the list. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I actually now I actually think, uh, in, in my old age, I actually think John Taylor is like more attractive than Simon Le Bon, but, you know, that's that's maturity, I suppose. You've grown up, Serena. Yeah, yeah. haven't I? <laughs> okay, so as we turn, there's a... Lyrics for Billy Joel's Tell Her About It. And then I just wanted to, to mention, because I think this might be one of the worst songs of the entire decade and we've come to it now. It's another band a bit like UB Bloody 40 that seem to be in every bloody issue and it's status bloody quo, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> always in. But with their worst song, I'm sure, by Country Mile, Margarita Time. Do you remember this song, Serena? Well, I, you know, I, I vaguely remember it. But, but looking at the lyrics... I you just get lost in them, don't you? Like I don't have any idea what the song, what it means. I don't have, I don't understand what it's leading up to, and the performance of it is quite jolly, but the lyrics are kind of just they're kind of disturbing. Does the person have the the DTs? It's really um. <laughs> I think it might be disturbing. Lost in a dream, lost in a fantasy. I think it's just someone getting pissed. It's either that or surely it's not margarita pizzas, is it? Well, it I must be the drinks. Right? Yeah, it, it, must, it must be the drinks. So it's like, come on, let's let's go out and get sloshed. But musically, uh, I just find this really hard to listen to. I mean, at, at the time, status quo, they, they were everywhere. They'd be on kids' TV shows, yeah, they'd be on yeah. top yeah. of the pops, and they were they were kind of part of part of the furniture, part of the establishment, and everybody was supposed to like them. And I had <laughs> right, a, right. A, a rather a rather a rather odd cousin who really, really liked them, which kind of you know, sort, sort of made me wary of them. <laughs> but also his 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 mom, my, my auntie, was was called Margaret. 
And so she said that this was her song. So, oh, this song's oh, about me. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so, so I've kind of got all that going on in there. But because it's got that vaguely country, uh, a country and Celtic sound going on. And I'm yeah. not a big fan of country music. It's, it's yeah. This for me is the worst end of, of country music. And it's kind of like being covered in, in, in syrup and then you're just being made to, to yeah. kind of move really slow. It just, it creeps and crawls over you. And then I think <laughs> when, I, when I was listening to the playlist, you know, normally I would put the playlist together, but Gavin had a crack at it this time. Mm. I did and all right, didn't yeah, I? You did a yeah. good job. Thanks. You did a very good job. Uh, pre- press play, you know, and uh, there, there's the Tears of Fears song. It's like, oh, that's not as good as I remember. Billy Joel. Well, I'm partial to a bit of Billy Joel from this era. I don't mind that. And then the status quo song came out. And I was. I was just coming out in a cold sweat straight away. Yeah. And, oh, oh, just really, really icky. Yeah, I think icky is the word. Yeah, it is yeah. an icky song. Icky. We're, and we're not the only people to feel like this. I, I went on the um, Song Facts website. And it said, in 1983, uh, status quo bassist Alan Lancaster thought that the new, softer material from Francis Rossi was destroying the group. Despite the fact that this ballad reached number three on the UK singles chart, Alan Lancaster hated it. It was like hearing Mick Jagger singing Humpty Dumpty, the Died in the Wool rocker, told Q magazine in April 2013. And then we also find out that uh, Francis Rossi said that... um, Apparently, Alan said the song was unmanly. He said he couldn't face his family after Margarita time. <laughs> Which, you know, I, I think fair enough to Alan Lancaster. But that too, that makes the song sound better than it is, don't you think? Like if you just yeah. heard that yeah. without hearing the song, you think, oh, that's going to be ama- amazing. So, yeah. I mean, I couldn't even tell you. Having I only obviously just listened to it recently, and I couldn't even tell you really what the, the tune is. It's not very memorable. It makes Chaz and Dave sound edgy. Yeah, you know, it really does. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Interesting enough, I don't know if you know Dixie's Midnight Runners did a cover of it. A Margarita Time. Yeah, Margarita Time. Yeah, you can you can find it, but even that doesn't <sighs> make it into a good song for me. But anyway, That's yeah. Well, let, let's move on from status yeah, quo. Please, please do, please do. <laughs> let's get to start, and there's a very interesting start. We've got a personal file with Mick Talbot of off of the Stale Council. We've got some stuff about Adaman and the strip video. We find out that. Um, He's been filming the strip video, and, and I love this phrase, ends up in the nudie. I, I've not heard that phrase for a long time, <laughs> not but for a long time. it's great. It's very 80s. Uh, so it was a bit of a steamy video where he kind of, I mean, I've seen it on YouTube. It really isn't steamy at all, but I guess back then it was a little bit. So they couldn't show it on Saturday morning's uh, TV shows. You had to watch Top of the Pops instead if you wanted to see that. Obviously, as uh, as I've said in previous podcasts, I was a massive Adam and the Ants fan, and that transferred to Adam Ant when, uh, when the Ants split. And I sent my granddad out to buy this seven inch because uh, I think the singles came out on a Monday in the UK and I couldn't wait till the weekend. So <laughs> I'd sent him to get it. And then midweek, uh, my mum was working late and I'd go and have my tea at my nan and granddad's house around the corner. And uh, I said, well, did you get the single? And he was a bit, he was a bit disapproving. He didn't kind of say anything, but I knew when my granddad was a bit not very happy and he kind of passed it over to me. And uh, he was like, he sort of shook his head a little bit, like disapproving, because Adaman, I think on the on the cover, he's, I think he's virtually topless, or maybe he's got like a little <laughs> jumpsuit, but that's mostly on, you know, kind of shown his chest. <laughs> and then, like years later, I thought, yeah, I mean, this is a man that fought in the Second World War, <laughs> and I'm, I'm sending him out to buy a strip by Adaman, and I think it probably challenged his. Uh, Old school masculinity a little bit, you know. Yeah. Well, did you send him out to to buy Marilyn at any time? Because that would have. No, I didn't. One hundred percent. 
I think that was the last time I got my granddad to buy a record for me because I, I was just too mortified. And I, you know, I was 13 and a half by that time. Oh. I, thought, I should probably just wait till the weekend yeah. and get it myself. So. Go and buy your own raunchy seven-inch Exactly, yeah. yeah. I think, was it still in the bag when he gave it to it, you? It was. Yeah. <laughs> I, think I'd, I think I'd really disappointed him a bit yeah. by doing that. Yeah, censored <laughs> by your granddad. There's also on page seven quite an interesting thing. And this is interesting because nowadays you can find references to pretty much anything online. I tried to find out some more information about this new bunch from East Dulwich called F1 Electric. Mm. I could not find a single thing. So there's a guitarist, a bass player, and three television sets. And um, there's some musicians <laughs> called Oscar Van Gelden and Alan Greenwood and a chap who lives in the telly. It's called Dominic. <laughs> it doesn't really tell you much about them. They do some shows, and I guess they've put some records out, maybe. It doesn't say what they've put out. But, yeah, just can't find a single thing online. So if anyone out there is a fan of... Uh, a kind of a multimedia industrial new wave combo called F1 Electric and give us any more information, you know, please get in touch. Enlighten us, yeah. I thought the personal file with Mick Talbot was quite funny. He comes across as quite a you know, light-hearted and, and playful guy. One of the questions, where did you meet Weller? In 79, uh, in 79 there was some talk of him uh, producing the Parkers, so Merton Parkers, um, Mick Talbot's uh, previous band, but it fell through. I first met him in Oxford Street Station, I was with my brother and we all went down the calf and had a natter. I thought he was all right. I didn't fancy him straight away, though. That took a while. <laughs> they also asked him his favourite Duran Duran record. He says, Save a Prayer. It's the only song of theirs that I've ever even vaguely liked. And it doesn't sound like Duran Duran. There's obviously some beef going on, isn't there? Because later yeah. on we'll get to uh, the Duran Duran interview and Style Council get the other side of the shoe in, don't they? But... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> we will come to that. Well, do you remember well, something Something I remember from Smash, it's not from this issue, but uh, Paul Weller saying that if, if Margaret Thatcher was in a band, she'd be in a band like Duran Duran, <laughs> <laughs> which immediately came to my mind when I saw what Talbot was saying. Yeah, and it's it's pretty spiky issue. We turn the page and we get a little feature about Nick Kershaw. Peter Martin speaking to little Nick. It's the lyrics for I Won't go, Let the Sun Go Down. Is it, I thought it was always called I Won't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, but that's really yeah, obviously just the so. chorus. Uh, we're not including the on me there. The, oh, yeah. the, the intro uh, starts with a quote from Nick. If there's anything I can do about stopping the Big Bang, <laughs> I'll do it. In fact, Nick Kershaw feels so strongly about nuclear war, he's written a song about it. I Won't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. But that's not all. He also hates the old men in stripy trousers who rule the rest of us with plastic smiles. And who can blame him? <laughs> um, yeah, think about it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Think about it. But I think, yeah, it's, it's telling that, you know, it, it goes on, uh, you know, through, through the... It's, it's only a little piece, only one column down the side of the page. And uh, basically, uh, it's kind of exposing Nick Kershaw as a muso he calls himself, um, he's basically just a muso. In other words, he can play loads of instruments, knows all about chord structures, structures, chord structures, if I can say that, and can write a decent tune. He's the type who prefers to be tinkering around in a studio rather than prancing about at nightclubs. That's the kind of pop star that we're dealing with with uh, Nick Kershaw here. What made me laugh in that was at the beginning, he says, if there's anything I can do about stopping the Big Bang, I'll do it. And then later on, he says, I don't want to preach to anybody. They can either take the words or leave them. 
you know, well, <laughs> yeah, you can't follow through on your convictions, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you all got to listen to this. I'm going to stop the Big Bang. Well, you know, listen or don't listen. It's yeah. up to you guys, no. you know. So, yeah. He's... Yeah, I don't forget the LP or deals with other burning issues like Darwin's theory of evolution. <laughs> <laughs> His conviction has fallen away very quickly. Was, was he big in Australia? <laughs> Nick? Yeah, Nick Kershaw and, and Howard Jones, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Very, both very big. On behalf of England, we're sorry. <laughs> okay, turning the page, and we've got another top uh, male pop star from uh, '83. It's Mr. Paul Young, who gets a whole page to himself and a nice picture of him in a in a lovely '80s suit with a pink tie. Um, and it's Peter Martin again. This time, he's speaking to Paul on the set of a TV show. He's gone to do Saturday Superstore, but for some reason there's a strike on. I'm not sure why. So they're in the Play School studio <laughs> instead, which is uh, for our Australian cousins was a you know a kids a, a very young kids uh, yeah, like, TV show. Yeah, like a TV show for preschoolers, basically. Right, right, right. And uh, obviously the DJ Radio One DJ Mike Reed was the host of Saturday Superstore, and uh, there's a good bit <laughs> with Paul where one of the things that Mike did he was a bit of a frustrated pop star, wasn't he, for many years? It was. His, putting out records that never really kind of did very much. Wherever Mike was, his guitar would surely follow. Yes, indeed. Oh, all right. <laughs> so this has caused Paul Young a bit of a headache. Uh, Peter writes, Once Paul's done his bit, we're off to his dressing room, number 212. He looks worried. Oh, God, he's asked me to sing with him. What am I going to do? Say <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a sore throat, suggests his helpful Scottish manager. His face lights up. Right, that's what I'll do. Problem solved. I just have to talk like this. He makes a noise that adds new meaning to the word gruff. For the rest of the show, there's definitely no business like show business. So Peter talks to him. He's had quite a, a giddy ride and he's very much on the carousel at the moment. Um, his re-released Love of the Common People, the first time it um, came out, it didn't do anything. But then Wherever I Lay My Hat was a massive song. Went to number one, I believe. I think it did. Yeah. And then this has mm. been re-released and it's now riding high in the charts. And No Parlay, obviously, is a number one album and has been big across the world. Mm. Uh, he's just come third best in the male singer category of the Smash It's Readers poll, beating Michael Jackson and David Bowie. It was fifth. And, uh, yeah, it's just to talk about uh, Paul's life and, and the changes that have happened recently. He, he says that the... Uh, well, Peter asks him how he's coping with the success and he says, the pressure's getting to me a little bit. I've hardly any privacy. I can't go into the local pub anymore and it's not that safe where I live. I don't know where he's living. I mean, <laughs> it can't be the Bronx, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, he's on the wrong side of town. Yeah, yeah. on the wrong side of the tracks. Staying in with his, with his parents. So, you know, where, yeah. where are his parents living? <laughs> he says, sometimes I prefer to stay with my parents. And Mick Talbot, I think, is, uh, was living with his parents in that. Like, a lot of people said to be staying with their parents or living with their parents in this issue. Yeah. yeah. I've got to say, though, there is something in this story... Literally, I never forgot from the time I first read it and I couldn't believe it when I was going through this issue and this interview was in this magazine. Okay, it is this bit where they say, so what could possibly motivate you? And he says, love. I might fall heavily in love. I should really say that because I've had a steady girlfriend, Kathy, for two years, but I always seem to be working and I always keep her separate from that. And I remember even when I was 15 thinking, what was that conversation like when the issue of the magazine came out and, and he had seen fit to make that 
pronouncement in it. I know, it's such a dick move, isn't it? I, I got exactly the same here. I was like, <laughs> why did he say that? I mean, how does she feel reading that? Yeah. They've been going out for two years and then he's like, well, I might fall <laughs> yes. in love and that would motivate me. I mean, maybe I shouldn't really say that. Yeah. But, you know, we've just been, and he's just been yeah. on holiday with her and he's still saying that. I'm like, mate. Yeah, and he'd always said, because he's so unmotivated, he turned up late to a TV show and, oh, instead of being on for 10 minutes, I was on for two. So he says, and he seemed, always seemed very kind of stolid, Paul Young, didn't he? <laughs> like his backup singers were so much fun. Like I always thought they were fantastic, the, the two women backup singers, and he always seemed like he was a bit of a, a, bit of a charisma vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice voice, but not a lot else going on. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, nice voice, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, you do get the feeling that, and and this is a recurring theme throughout this issue of Smash It's, and I think th- uh, throughout um, certainly the eighties period of Smash It's, in that they don't necessarily seem to be enjoying being a pop star. And it, yes. It, yeah, he seems to be you know quite reluctant. You know, he, he wants to be, he just wants to be out there performing and not doing all the kind of showbiz stuff that that goes with it. Yeah, uh, and, and so yeah. I think it, it's kind of you know, quite quite honest in in that way, and it's not like how pop stars would become yeah. as the decade wore on, and certainly when we got into the nineties with more manufactured bands appearing, who are all kind of you know groomed to be you know these these perfect little superstars sort of thing. Yeah, he's he's, he's just you know he's being an honest bloke. Absolutely, absolutely. And and he's just like I just want to you know make some records and and find some songs to sing, and I don't really want to be you know appearing on kids' TV shows, <laughs> pretending to be, have a fun time with uh, Mike yeah. Reed, who I say must say at this point would have yeah. been his hair twin. Yes, very similar yeah, hairdos. They've yeah. had similar hairdos, so, yeah, so they've been hard to, uh, hard to tell them apart. <laughs> apart from Mike Reed, who would probably been wear, wearing a nice jumper. <laughs> well, I love that where it says, and I, mean, I didn't even know who Mike Reed was when I read this, but Mike, Mike Reed, happy as a sandboy, strums guitar, while Cheggers and David Grout play Invisible Ones, singing higher and higher towards a truly awful crescendo. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is a Saturday morning in 1983 for me. Yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> and it says after that, Paul sits on the end, bemused, half opening his mouth in song. In his heart of heart, he knows this isn't the place for him. And in his eyes, you can see he's itching for life on the road again. So, yeah, very very much a man who didn't really want to be there, but was kind of going through the motions. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a good song. And that song really reminds me of that winter and really takes me back to that time, probably more than any other songs in this issue. I've got very kind of... Um, Proustian kind of uh, recall of hearing this song and having breakfast at my breakfast bar in, in the kitchen of the, the house where we lived as kids, only a couple of miles away from where Duran Duran grew up in, uh, in Sully Hall in Birmingham. Oh, wow. And it was, a, I seem to remember it being quite a cold winter and having toast and tea, and this was always on the breakfast show. And it was around for quite a while, this song, wasn't it? Um, so, uh, yeah, this, this really takes me back. So we flick through, we've got uh, the mutterings, the gossip section, uh, an advert for Kim Wilde's new album, Catch as Catch Can. And then we've got a, a full-page advert for Duran, uh, Seven and the Ragged Tiger, the mm. current album, includes hit single Union of the Snake, £4.29 in Virgin. By this point, you stopped being a Duran fan, so I guess you didn't get this album. Were you, such, were you so anti-Duran that you didn't buy any more records? Or would you have bought this? Well, look, my... My opinion then, no, my opinion then, and I have to say I, I have the opinion now, 
I really think all of their records after after Rio are, are rubbish. Really, I, I didn't like them then. I don't really like them now. <laughs> but I'll I'll have more to say on that topic a little later because Nick Rhodes says something a bit I find rather controversial. But yes, no, I would not have bought it then, and uh, I wouldn't buy it now. <laughs> Fair dues. <laughs> And then we get to get smart. Linda Duff asking those uh, burning questions <laughs> about pop music in general. Got a question about absolutely anyone or anything to do with music. Linda will get you the answer. Well, try. And there's a lot going on here. There's Isn't there so a lot much going, going on, on here? Everyone is a winner in this one. I mean, we could do a whole episode <laughs> yeah, just on this yeah. page, really. Yeah, the one that, that immediately leapt out to me. I'd like to know a few things about Boy George. His colour eyes, <laughs> size of feet, weight, height and chest measurements. Will he marry me? Also, what number did Wishing on a Star by Rose Royce get to? <laughs> and what's the title of the song which goes, Love on the dance floor, don't you want to boogie oogie oogie till you just can't boogie no more? That's from Teresa Glasgow in Finchley. Uh, <laughs> Most random question. <laughs> Linda, I think mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Linda replies, uh, and I think she does a good job here. George has greeny blue eyes, fits a size eight shoe. When you, when you get to his height, I find that size of shoe hard to believe. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. uh, size eight shoe, weighs about 11 and a half stone, stands over six feet tall, and measures a wholesome 38 inches around the chest. Size 15 and a half collar. I mean, this is very, you know, very detailed stuff. Sounds dreamy, eh? <laughs> he wouldn't commit himself to marriage, though. He got off the hook, as they say, by saying, my wife won't let me. <laughs> Meanwhile, Wishing on a Star peaked at number three in January 1978, and it wasn't too difficult to recall the lines above. They're from Boogie Oogie Oogie, a top five hit for one hit wonders, A Taste of Honey in June 78. <laughs> I hope Teresa was satisfied with that uh, rather comprehensive well, response. It, yeah, it was a fulsome reply, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. it, it was. Is it there was. any letters there that jumped out at you, Serena? Well, two that particularly jumped out at me. The one that starts with, as a collector of Nick Hayward's records, I'm very confused on the label on his latest day LP. There's a promotional sticker on the front saying including, on which it lists three of the hit singles, plus a track called Club Boy at Sea. Was Club Boy ever released in a single or was it at one time intended to be, as I think it's strange to be listed on the cover? Well, I love the way she starts by saying she's a collector of Nick Hayward's records, which, by the way, I don't think there would have been that many. <laughs> Half a dozen, maybe. At most. Yeah, you could have maybe, yeah. maybe done it in one or two shopping trips. Yeah, and I've just never seen anyone, like, pay that much attention to Club Boy at Sea. That, and the next letter about white, about, about uh, white Snake, <laughs> where did Cozy Pal of White Snake fame get the name Cozy from? Also, what is his real name? Does he have a middle name? And is he married or going out with anybody? And then I love the way it ends with, I also need the birth dates of all five members of White Snake. We all need the five. Like, for, for what? <laughs> <laughs> I need them. I must have them. It's, as you say, every letter on this page is is gold. I've, I've got one as well. I just want to mention that's really funny. It's got its own little photo of a little kid flicking through some records. <laughs> and it says uh, it's from Mrs. <laughs> Diane Farmer of Bedford. Please help me. We need the hour tune music on yeah, the back of this, don't yeah. we? Please help me mend a little boy's broken heart. My four-year-old son adores Shaking Stevens, but has lost his precious copy of Shaker's hit, It's Raining. I've tried in vain to replace it, but have come to a dead end. Do you know of any way I could mend his broken heart by getting a copy of the record? Here he is in the photo, desperately trying to find it. 
<laughs> if I look through one more time, it might suddenly be here. So uh, Linda, very, very lovely, uh, replies, your creed de coeur has even reached the heartstrings of those people around <laughs> Epic Records, where the man in charge, let's call him Uncle Johnny, has graciously donated a copy of Shaky's album from 1981 called Shaky. On it, you'll find exactly what you're looking for. Now let's see a nice big smile. So it all came good in the end. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, poor, that poor four-year-old lad losing his copy of uh, It's Raining by Shaky. <laughs> Devastated. And, and I do like how it finishes off, not with a letter, but a note from Linda herself. Um, says, please note... Further to an inquiry about a soul record called Nine Times Out of Ten by a certain Shaz from Doncaster. I thought that's who the record was by initially, but I don't think Shaz from Doncaster made a soul record. Uh, we've hardly been able to get past the reception desk with the wealth of letters from solsters and funketeers everywhere. They reckon Shaz was after the recording by Muriel Day, and a Sue from Middlesbrough declares she has, in her possession, two copies of the aforementioned disc and is most willing to donate one to you on receipt of your address. If both Shaz and Sue could write to me again, I'd be quite delighted to pass on the gem. Eula out there can be really quite nice sometimes. <laughs> it's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> you really feel part of something reading that, don't you? Yeah, it's that club thing, isn't it? You know, we, we've said before yeah, yeah. that kind of Smash It's was like a, a newsletter for a club almost. And uh, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, a very, very entertaining uh, Get Smart page there. Then we get on to Tina Turner. Yeah, so Tina, it's, it's a, basically like a very, very brief potted history by Ian Birch, um, but mostly about her in you know, her career current day. She's back in the charts with her cover of Let's Stay Together. There's a picture of Tina grimacing uh, in a, a leather dress. I, I imagine it's leather. I'm not quite sure what material that is. Um, and she's got two of her dancers slash backing singers clinging to her thighs, it all looks a bit sordid, to be honest. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if they, I don't know if just all just received some bad news and it's, yeah. it's all just sort of grimace. No, and it's like Tina, no, we can't believe this too. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's quite a quite an unusual image. I mean, Tina Turner was always striking anyway, um, so yeah, she, she really kind of co commands your attention there. But yeah, just, just the whole sort of maison sang. Oh, going on that. Don't know where that came from. Very good. That Very good. That was good, wasn't well it? The, 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 so yeah, the, the whole whole thing going on there is 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 quite an image. Well, that that really struck me in that uh, Tina Turner story. I remember it striking me at the time when she has the uh, the dinner with uh, David Bowie. That's you know my night with Bowie and the contents. And uh, she talks about how they had dinner in Zurich and David ordered it was a, a Swiss specialty and he sent flowers the next day to say sorry, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Do you remember how in 1983 how how posh David Bowie became? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it became more like a, a statesman sort of thing. Yeah, you know, exactly. Wearing all his nice suits and his, his, his kind of uh, coiffured popcorn hair. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And he became, and, and you know, became just sort of incredibly well spoken. I remember he was on Countdown once, being interviewed by by Molly Meldrum, and and uh, David Bowie was talking about the Let's Dance album and talking about a, a juxtaposition of surrealistic images, and and uh, and Ian Meldrum was just like absolutely flummoxed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I think, I think it's when um, Dave entered his regal phase and probably when he started getting the yeah. nickname Dame David Bowie mm. as, as well. Yeah. yeah, of course. She's also had dinner recently with tennis superstars Vitas Garolitis and Bjorn Borg in, of all places, Bahrain. 
She saw them play tennis and they came to her show. Afterwards, she laughed. We took pictures of each other, drank and jammed with my musicians. It was great fun. <laughs> Bit of a random again. I mean, after David Bowie, you think that's quite a big step down. Yeah. It's Caroline, it's Bjorn Borg. I mean, tennis superstars they may have been, but yeah. it's not the same as going out for a swank meal with Dame David. 100%. You know, so, uh, yeah, bit of a random encounter, that. We turn the page and we get straight into the, the fulcrum of the carousel, the beating heart of Smash Hits, mm. uh, the bits section. What's going on here? Well, it's only a two-page one, and often it's uh, it's a bit longer, but uh, a little bit less in this one. But uh, we do get a mention of Australia with Wham. Yes. Wham are telling people not to buy the recently issued Club Fantastic Mega Mix that their old record label, Innovision, have put out. It's to do with kind of legal wrangles with their record company, and uh, yeah, George doesn't want anything more to do with them. I think at, by this point they've signed to Sony. Was it they were on? Well, it, it was uh, CBS. So CBS, yeah, that's pre, right. Sony. Yeah, I'm, I'm into all my ownership of. Record companies and stuff. So yeah, <laughs> I'll not, I'll not, I'll spare you the, the details on the dates and things. <laughs> Thanks, so. Um, and uh, they ask, you know, where they're going next. And in the new year, we find out they're off to Australia. He says, "We've always wanted to go there. We love the heat." And oh yeah, George laughs because Duran Duran <laughs> went there. <laughs> what a, what a better reason is it for going to Australia than Duran Duran went there? I don't know quite why you said yeah, that. Yeah, the uh, only reason. There's yeah. also we. We spoke before, because I'm guessing you won't know who Steve Wright is, the guy to the right of those. He was another Radio I 1 DJ. I didn't. No. And I, yeah. No, well, I mean, we wish we didn't really as well. But he, he, was, he was a Radio 1 DJ. I think at this point he had the afternoon slot. Steve Wright in the afternoon. Yeah. Yeah, it's still kind of etched uh, traumatically yeah, he into was, my memory. He tried really hard to be funny and wacky and zany. <sighs> And uh, I mean, some people liked it, and that's fine. But uh, yeah, he he had these catchphrases and his six of his favourite expressions. I mean, they really weren't funny then, but when you look at them now in the cold light of day, they're very poor, aren't they? Like the bottom one. So he's, he's basically talking about some of his catchphrases and where he got the ideas from. So he's got "You are so sick." Get some therapy. I mean, people of our age will remember these. Yeah. I'm all right, you all right, which I think he had a whole hit single based on that, didn't he? Yeah, he did, yeah. yeah. And the last one is called Thank... The last one is Thank You, Doctor, and he says... This comes from an old lady I overheard in a doctor's surgery waiting room. I mean, that's very low-hanging fruit, though, isn't it, <laughs> to, get, to get a catchphrase. Thank you, doctor. In what world is that a catchphrase? It's just something someone said. It's not, it's not funny at all. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, that's Steve Wright. There's quite an interesting story about the Undertones, uh, who've got a, yeah. a new compilation out called All Wrapped Up. It contains all 13 of their singles and, for a limited period, a free album with all 17 B-signs. Uh, our problem, though, says Bits, is the cover. Possibly the most horrible cover Bits has ever seen. A photo of a woman sort of shrink-wrapped in bacon. It's sexist, childish and absolutely nothing to do with the undertones' music. This, according to their manager, is also more or less how the group felt about it. <laughs> and I thought it was quite interesting that they called it out because Smash It's wouldn't often take a sort of political yes. or moral kind of stance on things. But the fact that they did on this I thought was really interesting and, you know, fair dues. I mean, it is pretty... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this this little photo here doesn't do it justice when you see it in, in full colour. Uh, it is quite disgusting, which is a real shame because the track listing on the album is amazing. I do love that quote, though, that uh, this is also more or less how the group feel about it. It's so kind of uh, mild, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But again, it's another example, you know, like the Wham thing of uh, record companies doing things that the artists wouldn't uh, necessarily want them to do in their name. Yeah. 
Is there anything in here, Serena, that, that caught your eye that you wanted to talk about? Well, I guess the uh, the first column with them really sticking it into the Christmas songs is uh, is uh, pretty entertaining. The only one, they don't mind uh, an XTC one. Uh, well, it's Three Wise Men, but apparently it's actually XTC. But, uh, yeah, they're giving it to everyone. They're giving it to Elton John. They're giving it to, uh, well, I will say the one that appealed to me, though, where it says, God, everyone's getting in on the act. Dennis Waterman and George Cole of Minder have made, what are we going to get her indoors? Do you guys have a dream <laughs> yeah. for what are we going to get her indoors? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember that <laughs> very well. What are we going to get for our indoors? <laughs> oh, blow me. Yeah. 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 There's a Top of the Pops appearance they did for there, that, isn't there? It? Is. It's yeah. excruciating. We can share that with you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, please do. I would love that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, so you, you must have got the Minder series um, yes. on, on TV in Australia, yes. but you didn't get the record. And uh, I Could Be So Good For You was a big hit, yeah. actually. But, uh, yeah, I don't remember... Um, what are we going to get her indoors? <laughs> You've missed nothing. You've missed absolutely nothing. <laughs> and then we get to the singles reviews. In this issue, Dave Rimmer tackling uh, the, the Fortnite's bag of 45s. Yeah, Margarita Time by Status Quo. This can't be right. Status Quo, ditching their chugga, chugga, chugga and doing a sort of Chaz and Dave style sing-along about cocktails, pinch me someone. <laughs> uh, UB Bloody 40 getting in there with it. Not one, but two singles. Um, Adam Ant gets a single of the yes! Fortnite. Yes! Go Ant fans. Yeah. Yep. And then, well, Serena, I mean, I don't know if uh, you want to tell us about the, the little Rod Stewart review there. <laughs> it's only a few lines. The, uh, oh, yes, 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 yes. So, I mean, one of Rod's more forgettable songs, I think. I, I, I had no recollection of this one whatsoever. Well, no, neither did I actually until I um, uh, watched the video on your wonderful playlist. But yeah, no, this review, safe to say, concludes with one of my favourite lines ever from Smash Hits. Uh, the review reads, a typically dippy love song with lots of slidey country and western guitars. The best thing about it is a photo on the back of Rod sitting on a horse all dressed up in tartan and looking really stupid in italics. <laughs> but don't buy it just for that. But then, you know, Gavin kindly sent me the pic and, you I mean, I think you would have to buy it just for that. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's... It's a ridiculous thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great. Any standouts for you there, Gav? Well, obviously, uh, Strip at uh, a single of the week, which was nice. That was probably the last time uh, Adam got a single of the week in uh, Smash Hits. And Dave Rimmer mentions a line... I'm not a man who believes in lies like an octopus with big x-ray eyes. <laughs> I love it, whatever it means. Single of the fortnight. <laughs> Which is great. I mean, it's not one of his best singles, but uh, it, was, it was good that he'd still got a single of the week. Um, yeah. Obviously, UB40, we, UB Bloody 40, sorry, we mentioned earlier. And again, there's a, a, a record label putting out a song without it, uh, the band wanting them to. Um, Tyler, which was an old one on the graduate record label that they'd put out, even though it was on the first album from a good couple of years before. And there are many rivers to cross, which in the video, did you notice there's a few other pop stars? Have you seen the video? Uh, I didn't get that. Ah, uh, right. As what you be bloody 40. And uh, <laughs> Musical Youth turn up in it as well. So, uh, it's, a you... it's a party. There we go. It was near the Christmas time, so that's probably what they were going on there. Let's have a, <laughs> let's have a reggae Christmas party. <laughs> I've just got to mention as well, uh, the Irene Cara track I really liked. You know, the woman that sang the... Uh, the fame theme tune, and she does a song called Why Me, which I really liked. I don't mm. know if it, either the two of you listened to it. 
Yeah, yeah, I, 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 and uh, yeah, I liked it too. And I mean, Irene Carr is great, isn't she? And I was thinking, I don't actually know yeah. what happened to her. We've also just got to very briefly mention Robert Plant's In the Mood. Oh, and it's a great review. I wasn't by the end. Of it, <laughs> wasn't in the, just in the mood for lying down in a dark room afterwards. <laughs> Awful. It says quite why anyone would spend half a record intoning. I'm in the mood for a melody and then fail to provide anything even remotely resembling one is beyond the reasoning of this humble reviewer. Very dull. That is one of the most accurate reviews ever. Isn't it? It really <laughs> yeah. is. And the, the video's hilarious And because they, they've got, it's the 80s, it's 83, so they've got a couple of um, break dancers in there and I feel so sorry for them because they're trying to body pop to this bloody oh, God. song that doesn't have any tune or melody or beat. And they're, yeah. I mean, they're, they're game and they're, they're doing the best, but lads... You know, yeah, it's not going to happen. terrific. Everyone looks embarrassed. Robert Plant looks mortified, <laughs> mumbling along to it. Oh, it's absolutely bloody awful. Yeah, well, it's, it is uh, quite odd, actually, in those singles reviews that you do get, you know, the uh, hoary old pop stars or rock stars in their status quo, Rod Stewart and Robert Plant, in amongst yeah. all your, your, your top pop stuff that's going on. So still hanging on in there. Yeah. So, Serena, we've got to the 16-page uh, colour special insert that uh, was kind of the reason for you to buy the mag. So, yeah, I feel like I'm not, I don't really want to say too much about this. I think if it's all right, I'll just kind of hand it over to you to uh, talk about what you want to talk about from there. All right. Well, I mean, all right, I'll try to limit myself because obviously there's a lot to uh, get through with uh, this. Um, all right. Now, I suppose, obviously, I guess... I'll go. I'll go right to the bit that's stuck in my craw, I suppose, because I feel like there is so much to uh, to, to cover in this supplement. I feel like I should at least get this off my chest. Nearly forty years later, but I was uh, very offended when it says right why they decided to to uh, stay in Sydney and record. Los Angeles or New York would have posed too much hassle and too many distractions. Sydney just seemed the obvious choice. The tour was to start there and well they'd always liked the place. After three months though the longest they've spent in any one place for the last three years they were well fed up with it. Everything takes so long here John moaned. Sydney had begun to seem like a very small town. The energy they'd found when they first visited in early 82 when bands like Men at Work and Ice House were just beginning to make it big had now dried up and anyway they were all agreed you can't buy decent clothes in Australia now I think that was what upset me the most and I mean if you look at the pictures of them I mean maybe they're backing up their own argument with what they're wearing but I mean I presume they bought the clothes with them and they're just like <laughs> absolutely terrible so I was I was very angry about that and also might I say not at all true that the music scene had dried up it was actually it was very strong on those days like I mean I don't know what they would think about it now that all the um Anyway, that's a that's a story for another day. But so that was what made me angry in this. But what did strike me though, aside from my fury at that, they actually seem quite um sweet, I thought. And there's so much funny stuff in this when they're upset at the very beginning because there's going to be a photograph taken of them on a boat and everyone's stereotyping them, you know, drinking champagne and being on boats all the time. Oh, I can see the comments now, Duran Duran swanning around on a boat in Australia. The only time we ever go on boats, Simon impresses on me quietly, is when we're working. I promise to make this clear. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, they get stuck into a culture club 
Oh, I wasn't going to bring them up. We've never done anything as poppy and trivial as Karma Chameleon. And while they're being hailed as the new messiahs, we still get slagged off for being pop, pap and drivel. Why? Like there's a lot about them being attacked by the media, didn't you think? It's a lot about boats and being attacked by the media is is sort of the, um, oh, and not liking the style council. (laughs) So that feud is obviously alive and well. Roger turns on the radio in the car. It's the style council. Everyone screams. (laughs) (laughs) It feels like they're quite sensitive to sort of the media backlash, which they would have been sort of really feeling quite strongly by this point. And they're they're reacting to it in, uh, they're not really taking it in the stride, are they? Yeah. No, I don't think they've had enough of it. You know, like who plays the instruments on their records and, and things like that, as if they're, you know, they're just a bunch of clothes horses and, and they can't actually play play their instruments. But do you remember what you wrote in the letter to Smash It? Um, well, I think I would have been probably focusing on the clothes thing and their general ingratitude. And I remember it was quite a long letter and I would have actually posted in England as well because I was actually in England at the time when I was reading this. So I would have like marched down to the post box. And obviously for understandable reasons, it never uh, got published because it was a ridiculous letter. Um, so, yeah, I think I was very upset at their ingratitude. and but But also... Now, the controversial thing about this, I cannot get over this, is Nick, okay, Nick, who shook me by agreeing with some of the reasons why I've given Duran singles in different reviews in the past, remarked, I can't listen to the first two albums now. The first one was very original for its time, but Rio was only a very small step forward. It didn't achieve anything. I'm pleased with the new one, though. I mean, come on, mate. You know, that I, as I said, for my money, they did not have a good album after Rio. I, 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 nothing wrong with Rio in, in my book, but bands tend to be a bit like that. They'll dismiss their previous album because the next one, you know, the new one's better. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I think Seven of the, the Ragged Tiger seems to really, really lack direction, uh, whereas Rio seems to be really cohesive and, like, it seems to be the band... Yeah. They know what they want to do, they're, they're aiming for it, you know, and you've got the good pop stuff on there, Rio and Hungry Like the Wolf, then you've got something a little more interesting like Save a Prayer and also The Chauffeur, which is just a, a, a brilliant, brilliant song. Still sounds great to this day. Yeah. Whereas what? That's right. What was it? New New Moon on Monday. Union was, of the Snake. The Union of the Snake. They're quite forgettable mm. songs, and this yeah. this for me is where the the, the band yeah. just kind of falls apart. And and quite telling, I think you know they quickly did you know end up crashing upon the rocks. Well, that's right. I mean, I don't mind the the reflex. But I mean, too, didn't Simon Le Bon? I didn't he like nearly die in one of the video, one of those insane Russell Mulcahy videos in Wild Boys or something? I thought didn't he like nearly drown yeah. or something? Tied to the windmill, being dipped in water upside down. <laughs> yeah, what a way, what a way to go. I can see Brian Ferry at the funeral now. <laughs> My poor son Simon, <laughs> dabbing a handkerchief to <laughs> to the corner of his eye, his silk handkerchief. Finally acknowledged. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One yeah. thing that really made me laugh, though, towards the end when they're talking about uh, that rehearsal, Simon and Andy get quite bouncy and excited. So too does their American saxophonist Scott Page, a very rock and roll type <laughs> character. He keeps leaving his place and trying to dance with Simon, but Simon waves him back every time with a look of horror and disgust. <laughs> get back. <laughs> I love the bit about the uh, album shoot. Which is, I mean, talk about the excess of the 80s. Uh, They talk about how much it might have spent. It was anywhere between 65,000 and 200,000. But no one will (laughs) say exactly how much it did cost. But uh, 
Smash It says, it can't have been cheap. They flew <laughs> photographer Rebecca Blake and her crew out from America. They flew their designer, Malcolm Garrett, out from England. When they couldn't find a tiger in Sydney, they flew one by private jet from Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> it turned into a bit of a production number, John admits. Some 50 people gathered around the steps of Sydney Public Library. Photographers, makeup and wardrobe people, TV crews, people to look after the tiger, not to mention curious <laughs> passers-by who'd been warned about the potential disturbance on the radio. Smoke bombs going off all over the shop. And in the middle of all this, a poor drug tiger wouldn't play ball. He wasn't into it, John says. I think he was a jam fan. <laughs> the shop wasn't even used in the end. So after all that, and they didn't even bloody use the thing. God's sake. That's so true. That has everything, doesn't it? It's got the jam rivalry. Were you aware when all this was going on? No. I mean, the only story I ever heard about any anyone to do with Duran Duran while they were here was someone saw Nick Rhodes and McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> that is the only story I could I could tell you. I actually I've got a question for you with this though. When they talk about the men the the Aston Villa show for men cap making no money and the band disappearing with the takings, do you I have no idea what that what that means. Do you guys do you guys know? Well Aston Villa, you know they're a football team over here. Oh, uh. right? I don't know if you know. Right. In, in Birmingham. Yeah, in Birmingham. So I, I've only been to two football matches and Aston Villa was one of them. All ah, right, okay. Yeah. So Villa Park would have been one of the local football stadiums for, right. for Durant. So they must have put on a, a charity gig. I mean, I don't remember anything about the gig. But uh, yeah, obviously there was there was something about the uh, the charity not getting the money. So I think that that's obviously some controversy about that. Right. Which obviously the band are denying. Yes. Well, thank, thank you for explaining that. Um, the bit about the moms being interviewed in, in, in The Sun. Oh, uh, yes. Another source of amusement was the day The Sun interviewed all their moms. It was, oh, he was such a nice boy stuff. John cringes in embarrassment at the mere memory. <laughs> I mean, what mother wouldn't say that? But we were all on the phone straight away. Mother, what have you done? <laughs> Oh, mum. <laughs> uh, no, they, they, they do seem to be they do seem to be having fun at, at this stage, but I don't think the fun lasted much much longer for them, did it? In that kind of first phase of success, definitely. I think the wheels are coming off the fun chariot by yeah. this point, aren't they? I did buy um, a few years ago. I will just say, John Taylor's in the pleasure groove. Oh. And uh, he seems to have forgotten all the terrible stuff that he said about Australia <laughs> back then because he's quite complimentary. But I didn't feel mollified. I was actually just even more annoyed than I had been before. So please continue. <laughs> he didn't even acknowledge it. No, no. But the, judging by that book, though, he was taking ecstasy all the time while he was uh, here. So who knows? Um, so, yeah, I do like this this little bit um, where they're talking about... Um, well, just life on the road and, and things like that. It says later in the week, because it's um, Dave Rimmer who's gone out to spend a week with the band in Australia. Yeah. Says, later in the week, I'm driving across town with Nick, John, Simon and Roger and the BMW John's rented for the duration. His driving's a, a trifle shaky. The previous night, he left two contact lenses in two glasses of water, only to have a drunken roadie stumble in and down <laughs> one of them. He's now driving with one of them in. Like... <laughs> Oh, <laughs> right, yeah. That seems incredibly dangerous thing to do yeah, as a top does. pop star. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't get Gary Newman flying his plane without his specs on, would you? No, no, you wouldn't. No, no, no you, you wouldn't get the insurance for that <laughs> these days. You know, it's two contact lenses or nothing uh, if, if you're a pop star driving a rented car. It is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And when they're filling in their smash hits readers' forms as well. 
There seem to be altogether too many candidates for twits of the year and neither wants to copy Roger in putting the style council down. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I found, too, looking at that, the the page when it's just interviewing, you know, them separately, like that couple of pages, they actually seem quite sweet. Mm. Nick Rhodes loves the animals and Simon Le Bon is a bit dreamy and John Taylor is very cheerful and all of this. So, you know, they actually come across as, I thought, very pleasant fellows. Um, so, yeah, the, the piece carries on with sidelines sordid, revolting and outrage shouldn't be allowed. Uh, Peter Martin sifts through some of Duran Duran's true life confessions. Oh, yes. Uh, mentions here <laughs> that Andy met his wife, Tracy, at her her head, the hair. Andy met <laughs> can't do it now. Andy met his wife Tracy at her hairdressing shop. There we are. Wilson, Wilson, and Wilson. She used to do all the bands' barnets. Do you think that's a family business by any chance? Uh, possibly, possibly. <laughs> Sounds like an estate agent's list, doesn't it? Yeah. Wilson, Wilson, yeah. and Wilsons. My my favourite fun fact in that was uh, when Simon Le Bon met the rest of the band. He was wearing pink leopard skin trousers, and he had a book of lyrics he he was working on. Oh, and there was yes. one. There was, I think, the chauffeur and night porter are mentioned in there, and also there was a, a song. I don't know if it was ever recorded, but called "On a Dead Child," which is, you know, not not very Duran, is it? That no, not not, not yes. the Duran Duran that we know and love. No. <laughs> and I love too in that that uh, when they're talking about their nicknames, and Nick's called Ringo in quotes because he hates it. <laughs> in the little profile of Andy Taylor, it mentions that. His, these days, his dad's a carpenter and his last job was working on Rio, the restaurant Andy's bought in his hometown with some Duran money. So does anyone know anything about the Rio the Rio, the Rio restaurant? No, what's the, oh, their, their hometown was uh, up near Newcastle. Yeah. So if it had been in Birmingham, I might have known about it. But uh, I'm presuming it's not there anymore, let's say that. Yeah, again, if anyone can uh, get in touch with us and let us know what happened to the Rio... Was it a restaurant? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Rio the restaurant that was uh, somewhere in the north of England. Did, did you eat there? Yeah. <laughs> what what was have? on the menu? Did you have a Le Bon Bon burger? <laughs> <laughs> did you have a, a reflex uh, ravioli? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what did... Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or would it be re- reflex or reflux? <laughs> A Rio risotto. Yeah. What, did, what did you have? Yeah. I like the fact that he gave his dad some work. You know, that's uh, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah, well, keeping yeah. it in the family, that's good, yeah. clearly uh, important. Keep to, it in uh, the Wilson, Wilson and yeah. Wilson and Taylor and Taylor family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd, I'd just like to go back to the, the second page in this 16-page pullout, because there are some adverts in here. And there's a, an advert for Golden Wonder Superheroes, which is a, a six-track record that you could send off for uh, if he collected the tokens on Golden Wonder Superheroes Oh, packs. yes. Now, later on in, uh, when was it, 1984, we went for a weekend away in, in Stratford. It was in, in September. We had a family reunion, all staying in the caravans and stuff. And the shop that was on the campsite was selling these Golden Wonder Superheroes with the tokens on for the record. Fantastic. And they were selling the, the crisps off really cheap. Oh, So wow. I spent most of the weekend eating Golden Wonder superheroes <laughs> so I could get enough tokens to send off for the record. So I did all that, realised that the crisps were actually out of date. But no matter, I wanted the tokens. Oh. Snipped them all out, sent them off with a little thing with my name and address in there. And I think I had to send... A, my, my dad wrote a cheque for me uh, for pound twenty-five. We sent it all off. It all got returned to me because, as you see here, 
and I didn't read on the crisp packets off our ends 30th of June 1984 and this was September oh so mate. no wonder the oh no <laughs> no wonder the crisps are out of date oh. I've made myself ill eating all these crisps over the weekend oh, oh my god <laughs> but the record was no longer available and yeah it's not even they must have had some still stuck in a box somewhere they could yeah. have just sent me one no the cheque and the tokens were returned with a little note saying, sorry, this offer has ended. Oh, sigh. Oh. Gutted for you, mate. I'm gutted. Years later, I'm yeah, gutted for you. Yeah. It's still, I can tell. Yeah, yeah, your yeah. face, it still I means a lot to you. So wanted that six-track record. I really, really yeah, did. Yeah, Kajigugu, Classics Nouveau, Hayek at 100, Thompson Twins, Bucks, Fizz and Dexes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, that if if what a line-up to eat out-of-date crisps for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just eating Golden Wonder superheroes <laughs> just so I could hit, have a Classics Nouveau uh, song <laughs> to listen to whenever I'm damn well pleased. <laughs> so I just wanted to share that that experience and disappointment with you. Oh, thanks, Si. You feel better for sharing or uh, has it I, brought I, it all up again? It, like the crisps. Yeah, it did, literally did bring it all back up, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Right, so we get back into the uh, main part of the magazine now. We're on page 61, RSVP, four columns of pop fans, well, around the world, uh, somebody in, in, in America, lots of people in, in the UK, uh, just wanting pop pen pals. Anybody there that you would have written to, Serena? Well, I would have written to uh, Ian Davies. I am 16, extremely handsome, super fit, tall, and of course, very modest, like the, with a little joke. Like Culture Club, TFF and Depeche Mode, but it's this that struck me. Must, dis- <laughs> must dislike school and Mark Almond. Not only that, but he wants a photo. Mm. Oh, he does, yeah. 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 And he's just up the road here in uh, near Doncaster. Oh, wow. Not far from where we are. I can knit oh. round and uh, check that address out later on if you want. That would be great. <laughs> so what was it you liked about him? Was it his musical choices, Serena? No, I just liked the sentence, must dislike school and Mark Almond. That was what it was. And I guess the uh, maybe the tall would have appealed to me. <laughs> So I think it was. Uh, I think it was. Uh, that would have probably been it for me, and I'm sure I would have written and not gotten gotten a reply. But nonetheless, there's there's only one letter here that I would have uh, responded to, and that's I'm an American female who still likes Adam and the Ants. Oh yes. If anyone has anything to swap or would just like to write, then contact Kirsty in Rockaway Beach. So yeah, that that would have been my one. What about you? Yeah, so? I mean, I'll be honest. There's not anybody here that I would have written to really. I've taken pity on quite a few of them. Um, but Tammy in um, in Brickhouse. Um, my name is Tammy, and I'm 11. Hobbies include roller skating, swimming, and music. I also like Shaky and Adam. <laughs> I think, come on, Tammy, it's not 1981 anymore. Yeah, hey, come on, move, move, move with the time. We're almost in 84 now, yeah. Tammy. Come on, move with the time. Get your arse in gear, love. So I, I, I do feel slightly sorry for for Tammy there. I'm hoping that she did find it within herself to kind of leave those childish things behind and to <laughs> get into the hip and happening sounds of now rather than 1981. <laughs> yeah, there are some quite touching ones. I'm moving to London soon and would like to have some friends. Oh, It's so sweet, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so you, you mentioned that you were in the UK when, when this, this issue came out. You're in London and 
going down to the smash hits offices so what what was the reason for the trip you know did you have family over here was just a trip to the uk just for the for the sheer hell of it (laughs) (laughs) my mum is english and i have family over there so yes that was the reason why my first trip to england and as i say very exciting Yes. Yeah. What What do you remember from that trip, other than the uh, the, the smash hits related memories? Uh, watching. I remember watching Toe of the Pops, and I remember having a like a cold Christmas. That was the first time I ever had a cold Christmas because, of course, we have Christmas in summer. Uh, oh, eating a lot of food on the day, eating a lot of cakes. I was convinced that I saw John Moss in Harrods. I can still see him in my mind. So mainly John Moss, Cold Christmas, watching Top of the Pops, going to Carnaby Street to, to see the Smash Hits offices. Just very briefly, because Sai's already mentioned it in part of the contents, but um, we've got Star Choice. So this is where uh, a pop star du jour uh, chose um, a song. And, uh, you know, I, I think this is really interesting because... As I said earlier on, this is probably the only mention that Captain Beefheart ever had in, in the magazine. And Roddy Frame of Aztec Cameras chosen My Head is My Only House Unless It Rains from the uh, Clear Spot album. And he, he talks about it with like a lot of love and passion. And it's really nice mm. what he says about sort of the magical qualities of this song. And it's an aspect of Smash It's that I know we've touched on before, the kind of educational aspect of it as well. Because I know for me, this would have been the first time I ever heard about Captain Beefheart and his magic band. And although I didn't buy any records of of theirs for a, a few more years yet, I think it did plant a seed so that when I did hear about them again later, when I was kind of reading the NME and the kind of more grown-up kind of music papers, it was, they were already like there was a slight familiarity with them because obviously I, I do remember seeing this at the time and we had no way of hearing, hearing the song. I think if I'd have heard it, I probably would have quite liked it because it's certainly one of the more accessible mm. Captain Beefheart tunes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just thought it was really interesting. And, again, something we've said before about the breadth of stuff that Smash It's covers, and we saw it in the albums before with Einstutz and Neubarten and Alien Sex Fiend alongside Tracy Ullman, and then we've got Captain Beefheart in there. And um, mm. I think people often forget about the just the wide range and the sort of smorgasbord of music that, smash it's presented you know before you absolutely so uh, yeah i thought that was a really interesting choice of uh, of roddy's to, to put that in ah and then we turn the page and we have status bloody quo again <laughs> i'm not going to spend too long on them because I, f- I feel like we've already kind of uh, given them a, quite a bit of time already but just very briefly it's <laughs> more than they deserve <laughs> again it's at a tv studio like um paul young earlier on this time we're at itv and they're at the studio to do a routine with Cannon and Ball, who were a, a sort of a Saturday <laughs> evening primetime comedy, in inverted commas, uh, duo with the obligatory catchphrase, <laughs> Rock on Tommy. Yeah. I had a T-shirt with Rock on Tommy. I think right. most people did, you yeah, know, to yeah. be fair. I mean, it's slightly better than Thank You, Doctor, but not, yeah. not a lot. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a potted history of the band because they've been going since the 60s. Uh, 1962, they started as the Spectres. And that hit single in, I think, 68 with pictures of matchstick men. Francis Rossi refutes the idea that there's a, a formula, which, you know, I mean, Kip Quo, one of the most formulated bands. So the fact that he's like, no, we people always say we've got this success formula, he complains, as if we're going to the studio and say, right, get out the formula, lads. <laughs> it doesn't work like that, you know. 
I think it works exactly like that. It does work exactly like that. There's another mention of Duran Duran. <laughs> That's right, yeah. In fact, there's quite a lot of them. Yeah. Again, you know, and we talked about how other bands get bits of slaggings. And uh, I mean, at this point, they're only in the mid-30s, so it's not like they're really, really old. But um, they get asked by Tom Hibbert how it is uh, sharing the pop charts with all these new faces. And they say, well, Duran Duran are a very, very good-looking bunch of lads. And if they ever made a blinding record, I'd say so. Ooh. But some of the names they come out with, Tears for Fears, I don't know what that's all about. And what is it? Men with no hats? <laughs> yeah. What's that? But it's the video thing that worries me. You look at someone's video and you think, blimey, that's great. Then you suddenly imagine the band going to Sheffield Civic Hall and trying to do all the atmosphere. Man, on stage. I mean, I saw Depeche Mode in Ireland and there's these four dum-dums stood there. Only one of them ever moves, and they've got a drum loop and a tape at the back, and as soon as it stops, so do they. Whap! No time to talk to the crowd. I don't understand it. But then I'm getting on, ain't I? Yeah. It's the, uh, we get a little glimpse into uh, Francis Rossi's daily routine as well. Um, at nine every day, I get downstairs, and I pull the drawer out of the grill at the bottom of the cooker, put it on the top, get three bits of bacon, two sausages, two eggs, and a tin of tomatoes on the go. I do like a serious drop of breakfast every day. That is, <laughs> that's a massive yeah, breakfast, yeah. isn't it? You're not going to want any lunch. No. If that's your breakfast. <laughs> I love that because I, I love how it start, the story starts with him having trouble getting into his jeans and when he gives that account of his breakfast <laughs> and it goes on to say, perhaps that is why, why it takes so long to tuck yourself into your jeans, I suggest. This doesn't seem to go down very well and so he moves swiftly along to modern pop. <laughs> <laughs> And then we get to Mr. Robert Smith. Yeah, it's uh, he spent four years in one group, The Cure, and no one seemed to take much notice. Now he's in three, The Cure, The Glove, Susie and the Banshees, and suddenly everyone's talking about him. They say he's mysterious and miserable. He says he's chirpy and cuddly. Your referee, Peter Martin. Uh, yeah, so Peter Martin's um, chatting to Robert Smith. And I think he, he actually seems to be at this point enjoying um not necessarily being being a pop star but certainly being being a musician and tasting some of the pop life apart from top of the pops oh yeah <laughs> so he, he moans a little bit um he says how do you think you come across on programs like top of the pops for a start we don't smile enough to fit in i find it really hard to pretend <laughs> to see through that camera into the homes of those millions of people who are really going to love you it's such a farce. I look really bored because I am. We only do it because if we didn't, someone else would. The lipstick? It's not to shock or anything. I don't know why we do it. Certain people like Susie look great without really trying. Uh, Peter goes on to ask, in your opinion, who comes across worse on top of the pops? Every time Shaking Stevens appears, I get a really tight feeling in my stomach. And Black Lace, <laughs> they're on with the Banshees. Before they went on, you could see it in their eyes, that desperate feeling. It's really distressing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think he's actually quite, quite fun and, and playful. Uh, I think he's really quite enjoying the pop ride at this point in time. Definitely. <laughs> Just having a bit of fun. Um, he sledges Duran Duran as well, though. Well, I always think it's funny when those totally manufactured groups like Duran Duran arrive in a blaze of glamour and when they've made lots of money, want to be taken as serious artists and like Adamant returns with his new image and he's got a different coloured frilly shirt on. I used to go into whole evening discussions on how to mutilate certain people, but I've become much more tolerant now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, thanks, Bob. <laughs> I mean, I'll take Duran Duran getting a kick in, but, you know, I'm not having him having a go at Adamant. That's beyond the pale. He's, cr- he's crossed the line there, Robert Smith. But I, I really love The Cure at this time. Mm. I like I liked their singles when they were got more poppy. He talks about the old fans, doesn't he? Because obviously they'd come from quite a gothic kind of um, serious kind of art school sort of uh, student-y back in, and then they put these pop singles out and... Uh, Pete Martin says, how have your old fans reacted to the change? And he says, some feel cheated. I really detest them. That's quite harsh, isn't it? I really detest them. It's like we're their pet band and how dare I tamper with our mysterious image we've brought up over the years. I never asked for blind devotion. And uh, he says that, yeah, people have written to them saying that faith was such an important part of their lives and it's been shattered now. But um, he says that, you know, he's a multifaceted person and he likes doing different styles of music and, you know, well... Fair dues. Yeah, no, I do think his tongue is in his yeah. cheek at, at points in, in that piece. <laughs> Why is it that Bob's holding in his hand? Sunglasses. Oh, is it sunglasses? Yes. Yeah, oh, I can see it now. <laughs> the, 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 the light reflecting off the corner was really uh, throwing me off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I thought, I didn't know if it was like some sort of little <laughs> toy plastic cat or something. But no, it's sunglasses, thank you. That's getting cut. <laughs> no, you're leaving that inside. No, that really like, What's that? What's that? Sunglasses. Sunglasses. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. That's boring. And then we've got Roland Rat Rat rapping. Was did you know who Roland Rat was in Australia? <sighs> no, I don't. But yet, I I feel like I had a familiarity with him, but I don't know why. But rap rapping. Yes, yeah, seems really bizarre, doesn't it, when you revisit Yeah, it did feel quite strange. Probably at the time, really, for that matter. <laughs> kind of those novelty rap songs were a big thing. I mean, to be fair to Roland, um, I think there's there's a bit in here that really seems to be very much ahead of the game. You know, like one of the styles of rap and hip-hop is kind of a lot of boasting about your, your wealth and yeah. uh, your honeys and being down at the club and all that kind of thing. And... Uh, He's got um, some lines where he says, um, at my feet, the world is my oyster, Kev. Why? Because I'm full of showbiz glamour, aren't I? I'm the world's first rodent superstar. Lots of talk and lots of action. Roland Rapp's the main attraction with a penthouse suite, swimming pool. Pretty young guinea pigs playing it cool. <laughs> Rolls Royce yachts, caviar. I told you once I'm a superstar. You know, he's, he's very uh, Snoop Ooh. Doggy Dog, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Roland Ratty Rat. Yeah. Roland Ratty Rat. Yeah, it's quite witty, I think. But see, I remember a lot of the kids uh, in the, being into Roland Rat at school and going, yeah, Rat fans, all that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I didn't like it. I didn't watch because Roland Rat was on ITV and I used to watch BBC children's mm. programmes. So, right. Yeah, it, it, like, like the Tiswell Swap Shop thing in the 70s, I, I was yeah, I was on the BBC. Side. <laughs> yeah. There's an urban myth about, I don't know if it's true or not about Roland Rat, but that his ears were made out of rubber johnnies. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure if that's true, but looking at it. Yeah, it looks like it in, would be, actually. Yeah. In that particular light. Yeah. <laughs> I think you've got a point there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about uh, Kevin's. They're definitely a smaller size. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I'm never going to look at Roland Ratson again. <laughs> I've never heard that urban myth before. I wish you hadn't shared it. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we then get to the letters page, two pages. Dear Black Type, as ever, a lot going on. 
But I just want to uh, bring your attention to the uh, second letter down here. After reading, uh, this is a bleached chameleon who's responding to um, a previous letter. After reading Mrs. Andrea Harbinson's letter, November 10th, I thought I'd just tell you about my dad, Patrick Hammond, who is at the ripe old age of 40. This paternal wonder reads every issue of Smash It's avidly, would never dream of missing Top of the Pops and tries his hardest to do body popping and <laughs> robotics. His favourite groups are Culture Club and Wham. Lengthy discussions are held every tea time on the goings-on in the world of pop and, on Tuesdays, much speculation goes on as to what will be the new number one. He's always right, the rat. I would like to nominate him for next year's coveted award for showing extreme trendiness in the face of great opposition or failing that, a £10 record token. <laughs> That's pretty cool at 40 to be, uh, yeah, to be down, to, down with the kids like that. Yeah, down, down with the kids. kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, certainly in, uh, in, in the 1980s. Uh, Serena, any letters there that, that caught your attention? I mean, yeah, being a letter writer to smash it to yourself. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, my, my letter was so stupid and these letters are just so funny. And uh, one thing that I always loved in Smash Hits was that world's most boring place debate. And I remember the first time I ever struck it, it wasn't in this issue, but I seem to remember there was like a running joke about Milton Keynes in the, in the letters pages. And I didn't even know what Milton Keynes, you know, was. And I, did, and I thought it was so funny. And I just, yeah, I just love it when the, you know, the, the person writing from Paris and how boring, oh no, sorry, not Paris, France, how boring France is, letters signing off, yours in boredom, Swindon being the pits. I mean, it's just letter after letter about who lives in the most boring place that just has <laughs> nothing, usually not, nothing to do with music or anything in the magazine. It's just, it's so great. I love the one in this uh, from King Kurt's Underwear where it says, come and visit the biggest ghost town of them all, Hartford. Where, I hear you scream, our only <laughs> cinema has been turned into a car showroom, our civic hall is used for women's institute meetings or wrestlers, and the only group that's ever come anywhere near is Chaz and Dave. <laughs> Just sums up life in 80s Britain, really. Yeah. Um, at the time, you know, Marilyn is, is starting to ride high on the carousel as well as Boy George, and um, it's caused a little debate on the letters page. There's a letter from uh, Brigitte from Leighton Buzzard, all comparisons between Boy George and Marilyn must stop. That's very direct. <laughs> must stop. Having just seen Top of the Pops, I feel I must point out some searing errors in these accusations. <clears throat> Not sure exactly what the accusations are. Let's find out. Boy George appears sexless in his bright garb. His makeup isn't seductive, but effective. And anyway, if his appearance hints at either sex, he comes across as more male than female. Indeed, he is the soulful clown of pop. <laughs> and extremely talented too. He is sheer personality. And if Boy George was to don clinging leotards and sport silky locks flowing over naked shoulders, I think there's some, some very dreamy imagery going on here, isn't there? Right. Start gyrating at the hips and breathing heavily into the mic. Would the girls still go gaga? Like hell. Peter Maz Robinson, brackets Marilyn, appears looking like a rerun of all the garishness of the 70s, complete with his corny, <laughs> casually slip the jacket off the shoulder routine, wearing hand-me-downs from the three degrees. He flaunts his, <laughs> quote marks, sexuality with all the subtlety of a muppet. He has me cringing. He hasn't the strength to support such an overdose of campness. <laughs> This is like this letter is an overdose of campness. Also, Boy George is visually appealing. He has innate colour sense. In your pic of Marilyn, October 27th, he's wearing bright pink lipstick, a scarlet top and a man's watch. Mm. Look, 
I'm the last person to say that boys should be boys, etc. But listen, Maz, honey bun. <laughs> I just want to say that I totally agree with you. You are not a Boy George clone, God forbid. No, you are, in fact, dare I say it, yep, in screamingly bad taste. <laughs> so there we go. That put it to Marilyn, didn't it? Wow. 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 And that's why Marilyn never had another hit single after calling your name. <laughs> I feel like I need to calm down after yeah. that one. Yeah, you, you were getting kind to that one. Oh, yeah. what? <laughs> you, think you were method reading that letter. <laughs> I was Brigitte from Leighton Buzzard for a, a moment there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, that's the main thing going on in the letters page is uh, crap towns and uh, boy George. I do like the boy Kevin picture. Yeah. <laughs> someone's, <laughs> yeah. someone's done a sketch of what Kevin Rowland would look like as Boy George. In fact, I remember I traced that into an, an aerogram to send to my best friend. I just <laughs> thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever seen, that picture of Boy Kevin. You must have felt like when you bought this magazine and it came out at the time, because you were in England, you must have felt like you'd gone into the future because yes. your mates back at home wouldn't be getting this for another month and a half. Oh, absolutely. And I remember sort of being quite boastful because I saw... Uh, Culture Club's victims video on TV and sort of boasting about it in a letter and then a friend told me that, oh, like she, you know, she saw it quite soon after me. But you get like incredibly, you have a period of being like incredibly up yourself just because you're, you're uh, in another country and you feel like you're ahead of the game. So, yeah. But no, it was. It was it was absolutely incredible. Yeah. You'd visited the cradle of pop itself, hadn't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, it was, it was like going to... Heaven. I mean, I was absolutely desperate at, in 1982, absolutely desperate to go to, to Birmingham because of Duran Duran, and I still have never been to Birmingham. Yeah. Mm. I mean, yeah, Birmingham. <laughs> no, no, I'm fond of Birmingham. You know, it's kind of like where I grew up, but, uh, yeah. It's, there, trans- it's transformed now. It has, it has. It, it would have been a different experience in 1980. I'm just thinking <laughs> as a tourist in the, in the early 80s coming over, it probably wouldn't have been as exciting as it, it mm. would have been in your head. Probably best that you didn't visit <laughs> and the memory, you know, the, the thoughts and the fantasies remained intact. Yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah. But obviously, a few years later in Australia, you got your own version of Smash Hits, but was there anything... Mm like this on the market at mm. this time that was actually homegrown for Australia? No, we ha- we had music press. We had uh, a music paper called Duke and we had a music paper called Ram, but they were more, they were much more sort of serious. They were, they were um, more like Melody Maker, NME, that sort of thing. And then when Australian smash hits came, it was that difficult thing that then we stopped getting the English smash hits, so I have a bit of a resentment against the Australian smash hits because that was the end of the English smash hits. <laughs> no, we we didn't unfortunately have anything exactly like smash hits until we actually had smash hits, but it, it just, it, I don't know, it just didn't feel like it was the same. Is that when you stopped buying it? Yeah, well, I didn't, I mean, I didn't have any choice because I think they just actually stopped stocking the British smash hits when they started creating the Australian smash hits. So, yeah, and I think... Uh, that was late '84, so it, it was it was taken out of my hands, sadly. So did, you never, you didn't get the Australian one, or you you tried it a few times and it wasn't for you. I, I tried it a few times and it wasn't for me, and it was nothing. It wasn't that I didn't like reading about Australian bands or anything, but it just felt so much like a copy of the of the English one that it, it didn't feel authentic to me. I'd rather just have read the other Australian music press and just you know just left it at that. Which is what I did. 
Okay, moving on from the letters, we'll just very quickly look at the uh, the nights out, the live page. So we've got the tour dates. Uh, again, you know, talking about the breadth of smash hits, they give you dates for the animals, who, you know, by that point, it was a long, long time since they'd had a hit. Hawkwind doing a big old tour. Level 42, Slade, Thompson Twins and Tina Turner. And then reviewed uh, gigs are Ozzy Osbourne in Birmingham. Cabaret Voltaire in Sheffield, Shaken Stevens again <laughs> in London, and The Smiths. And it's quite an early mention of The Smiths, I think. I guess there would probably have been one or two mentions before, but this was when uh, this charming man was in the charts and they were just starting to ride on the giddy carousel of pop. Shaky was always, he was a permanent fixture on the giddy carousel. Um, there's a bit that really made me laugh here where it's talking about um, Green Door, his hit single, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lisa Anthony says the thing she doesn't like is all the gimmicks. She says, for Blue Christmas, tons of fake snow floated down into the front rows. And for Green Door, we had Shaky emerging from said object, bopping down some stairs, tripping up and nearly breaking his <laughs> neck in the process, which would have been amazing. I'd have loved to have seen that. Oh, yeah. man. And then, yeah, Shaky disappears in a puff of smoke through a trapdoor in the floor at the end after he's wished everyone happy Christmas. And, uh, yeah, that's it. Shaky, Shaky's gone. But, yeah, Lisa doesn't like it. She calls it tacky. Uh, and then the Smiths at Westfield College in London. Again, you know, this would have been quite an early uh, mention of them, but I, I know that I cut this out and put this little bit on my wall because by this point I was really getting heavily into the Smiths and... Adamant was starting to go down the pop dumper for me, and uh, but the carousel was spinning hearty for the Smiths. But yeah, I just like the the fact that there's such a, a nice range of uh, stuff. Again, you know, Cabaret Voltaire, very kind of at that point a very experimental band, but they get as much space as Shaky does in the magazine. And that's your lot. As as we said, eighty eight pages altogether, including that sixteen page Duran Duran special. An absolute whopper. Ooh, feel the like yeah. quality and the quantity of that. Yeah. So what's what's it been like, Serena, going back to that issue of Smash Hits and and, and revisiting it and you know the memories that it's brought back for you? Oh well, it's been the best fun, and I mean, what strikes me is how vivid it is to me, and how vivid that time of your life is. I mean, personally, I can just barely remember any of the nineties at all. I mean, I could. I feel like I barely remember any of this, if any of this century. But for some reason, that sort of eighty-two, eighty-three stretch, when I guess when I was really into the sort of uh, top forty, I guess it's, it's the. I don't know. It's one way of putting it. And then I feel like by eighty-four, I flipped over into sort of you know trying to be cool, and I mean you know failing dismally, but sort of trying to be cool and not listening to that to that kind of, well not being so focused on that music it's I, I guess that that's my feeling how 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 much fun it is and how much fun the magazine was and also by the way how meticulous the subbing was like it's such a it's such a literate magazine I mean correct I'm look correct me if I'm wrong and you probably know much better than I do but I'm not sure that there's anything like it today i mean i don't know they may be on the internet but that sort of mixture of of taking something that was directed towards very young people but writing about it at really a very sophisticated witty level i i don't know that that exists anymore no i think you're right i can't i can't think of anything that does well it's kind of been uh, absorbed into 
culture. Yeah. And I think that the people who grew up reading smash hits, you know, that there isn't a dedicated magazine like that anymore. And, you know, that there aren't really many music magazines anymore. Yeah. But certainly within writing about culture and writing about pop culture and, and maybe a little bit in podcast culture as well, I think some of that, that attitude of smash hits has kind of, it's it lives on yeah. through those those other things. So actually, its its influence has, has gone far and wide, and it's diversified across um, through people who've gone on to become writers yep. or work in the media or, or whatever. I mean, you yourself, you're a writer. <laughs> I mean, was you know smash it an influence on on what you wanted to do? I suppose. Um... The, yeah, as you say, I think the attitude, I think the attitude sinks into you at, at an early age with uh, smash hits, definitely. I mean, I, I, I wish I were a writer on the level of the, the, the smash hits writers because, I mean, uh, sadly I wouldn't flatter myself that I were. But, but I think it's true. I think that particular attitude when you encounter it at that age just sort of stick with you as uh, something to aspire to, I suppose, and an, and an outlook on life. What an outlook on bands and so on, yeah. Well, thanks, Serena, for joining us on the carousel. Thank you so much. Uh, and for reliving those top pop memories. <laughs> it's, it's been really interesting to hear your, your take on things from somebody who lived <laughs> the other side of the world but was so into pop music, but was taking it from that, that British perspective. I think that's, you know, that's, that's the really interesting thing, I think, about you know, what, what we've been talking about today. Well, it has been an absolute honour. Thank you so much for asking me. I've had a much better time than I ever had on an actual carousel. Hey. <laughs> that's good to hear. And also, thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to check out our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, where you'll find the links to the issue of Smash It's that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists, so you can enjoy your ride on the carousel to its fullest. And, of course, you can check out our previous episodes, playlists and scans, our back issues, if you will, while you're there. And if you've enjoyed the show and you want to support us by buying us a coffee, we would be forever in your debt. It's coffee.com forward slash giddypoppod. That's K-O hyphen F-I dot com forward slash giddypoppod. And that's where you can do that. And come and say hello to us, as always, at giddypoppod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And we'll say hello back. We will indeed. So thanks once again for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. Bye! Bye! Bye. <laughs>